You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. We need to think about who's going to benefit, how are they going to be brought into this, and what are the models of financing that will allow that to happen. It's hard when you have the costs and the benefits of these projects sitting in different states, and you have the states in charge. For June 22, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. One of the persistent challenges to the energy transition is nimbyism, the resistance of people who don't want to host things like wind and solar farms or transmission lines in their communities. And we have explored some of the historical instances in which local resistance prevented energy transition solutions from being built in several previous episodes, such as episodes 50, 98, 121, 161, and 164. But we haven't yet really delved into what can be done about it. What do project developers and community plan need to understand about what motivates a community to accept or reject a proposal to build a new facility in their backyards. What are the specific tactics that have proven to be effective in earning a community's support, and what are the missteps that are guaranteed to derail a project? And what is the role of staffers in building and planning agencies in guiding the development of projects in their communities? To help us understand these issues, I turn to Dr. Sarah Mills at the University of Michigan. Not only has she researched these questions by talking to people in host communities in the American Midwest and the Great Lakes region, with a particular focus on rural communities, she also acts as the chair of her local planning commission and tries to help local governments set policies around the development of clean energy by integrating it into their land use planning, zoning, and other policy making. She's a true expert in the field, and it's a privilege to have her share her knowledge with us today. Then in the news segment, we'll update the actions that Europe is taking to reduce its demand for oil and gas. We'll review the latest data on EV sales. We'll have a peek at a V2G project in the Netherlands. We'll see what it will cost to use the new Ford F-150 Lightning electric pickup truck as a battery backup for your house. We'll check out some floating solar projects. And we'll note some post-mortems on the freeze that plunged much of Texas into darkness last year, as well as the trouble that Texas may be heading into again. But before we go to the interview, announcements, announcements, announcements. Just because we've never announced them all together, we'd like to thank the following universities for purchasing group licenses to the Energy Transition Show so that all of their faculty and students can access our entire catalog of complete shows as well as our other features. So, in alphabetical order, here's a big thank you to Carnegie Mellon University, Central European University, Colorado School of Mines, Colorado State University, Copenhagen Business School, Cornell University, Michigan Technological University, Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, St. Lawrence University, Stanford University, Stellenbosch University, UCLA, Universidad Adolfo Ibanez, University of Aberdeen, University of Colorado Boulder, University of East Anglia, University of Freiburg, and University of Virginia. As we discussed back in episode 100, professors at these universities are using our show as coursework, and they have told us that they find our extensive show notes and transcripts particularly useful. So, if you think your higher education institution would like to use the show as well, just drop a line to accounts at energytransitionshow.com, and we'll get the process started. Our show is typically licensed through the school library, just like any other journal, and the enrollment process is simple. 
And if you're considering a career in energy transition but haven't checked out our job board in a while, you should log into our website and peruse the new listings. In just the past couple of days, we've gotten new listings for engineers, analysts, economists, and finance professionals, software developers, and administrative assistants. There's something for everyone, so join the legions of people working to advance the energy transition today. And now, our conversation with Dr. Sarah Mills, recorded May 6th, 2022. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Sarah, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, thanks for having me. Your work is focused on helping communities consider energy in their land use planning and zoning and other policymaking. And your current project focuses on how renewable energy development impacts rural communities, how they react to those projects, and how state and local policies facilitate or hinder renewable energy deployment. So today I wanted to explore some of your research findings and try to highlight some insights that might be useful to renewable energy project developers and community leaders alike. So let's start with the size of the problem. How much potential wind and solar capacity is being delayed or otherwise held back by resistance from the host communities? I feel like I'm going to start with a very dissatisfying answer, which is that there's not really a definitive way to track this. Yeah. We don't keep good track of it. So everything that I would say is really based on anecdotes and my experience in Michigan, but also more generally in the Great Lakes states and what resonates with colleagues in other parts of the country. I know of a lot of projects in Michigan that have met with resistance or have been denied entirely. And that's also true in many of the Great Lakes states that I'm really familiar with. And I know talking to colleagues across the country that this is something that they're also facing. I would say definitively that there are more projects meeting with resistance now than there were a couple of years ago. Hmm. And probably that I go out on a limb, but I would say large projects, those that are bigger than 100 megawatts or so, meeting with some sort of resistance is the norm. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's not that projects aren't being approved. Many are, but there are a dozen that I can tell you in Michigan alone, which were abandoned or denied because of community pushback. But even more common than just kind of the outright denial is delay. So whether it's multiple hearings, many more than kind of what would be anticipated from a land use perspective, local officials kind of agonizing over what to do, whether to approve the project or deny the project, kind of relitigating or rehashing past decisions. That happens a lot. And that's really, really hard to quantify. Hmm. Okay, well, I'd like to understand something about the kinds of objections to wind and solar projects that your research has revealed. So let's start with wind. In 2018, you and a colleague conducted a survey of industry professionals in four U.S. Midwest states to characterize the objections, which you called contentions in your study, to wind farms. So how did you go about that study? So contentiousness is really hard (laughs) because it's relative. What might seem contentious in one place or to one person might not to another. So what we tried to do in that study is to get folks who were familiar with multiple projects to rate them in relationship to each other. So that study acknowledged that everybody's assessments are subjective and that it was really based on their frame of reference, but kind of by the law of averages, that when you look across them, you get somehow close to the truth of which projects just faced more opposition than others. So in that study specifically, we asked a bunch of people familiar with multiple projects to rate them. Developers, state officials, 
NGO staff who work on renewable siting. Okay, so it's sort of an anecdotal, just subjective evaluation of these various people to saying how contentious they thought it was. Exactly. And in terms of kind of what made it contentious, it's different from place to place. But I would imagine that when people were were doing their assessments of a particular project, they were thinking like, did we have a lot of people show up in opposition? Was this something that, again, the kind of community agonized over rather than asking them about any one specific issue that came up? It was just the overall general sense of like, this was a hard decision for this community to make. So give me an example of some of the kinds of contentions or resistances that you found as you interviewed these people. Yeah, not just interviewing people, but I would say that I also, as part of my work, I go to rural communities that are faced with wind or solar decisions and help answer questions, help them sort out the pros and cons. And so I get a lot of these questions myself. Hmm. A lot of the questions are about like, what will this mean for our community? Is this an economically good thing or is it a bad thing? And for large scale wind and solar projects, this is economic development for a lot of these rural communities, both in terms of the lease payments that are made to landowners, but also in Michigan, and this is true in most states, there are community-wide economic benefits in the form of tax payments, property tax payments that accrue to the local government. But there's also very commonly for both wind and solar, a question about, is this going to decrease property values nearby? Sometimes there's contentiousness or opposition about who has the wind turbines or solar panels on their property and who doesn't. So this kind of kind of haves versus have nots shows up. Often there's vocal concern about human health impacts associated, that's largely from the wind side, will wind turbines cause cancer? Or will the noise make me sick? Is there such a thing as wind turbine syndrome? Those are kind of concerns that get brought up. Also, sometimes environmental concerns get brought up. Are these things actually good? Like wind turbines are going to kill some birds. So lots of different concerns are voiced. At the end of the day, I mean, going back to that 2018 study, my sense is that a lot of this just has to do with whether or not the person speaking thinks that a renewables project fits in their community, sometimes from an aesthetic perspective, but often just from what that land is supposed to be about, like why they live in that community. That's one of the things that we found in that study. So as I think about the kind of things you just listed off there, I get the impression that A lot of it has to do with things that people might have heard about wind farms or just concerns expressing their lack of familiarity, I guess I would say, as opposed to just simply, I don't want to look at it. I think that that's right. Well, there's lots of reasons that people bring up. I think that I don't want to look at it is often underlying a lot of it, but that seems Mm. a, a little bit less legitimate of a reason to bring than like, I'm worried that this will make me sick. Uh At the same time, I think that it's a human reaction to question what a big change like having 50 or 100 or 150 wind turbines, what a big change that would be in a community that doesn't currently have them. And so people are worried, like, what will this mean for my community? And like you get on the Internet and you can find a whole bunch of stuff out there about 
the impacts and the news that tends to spread is horror stories because that's what makes the news. And so I think it's sometimes repeating the things that you see when you start to grapple with what will this mean? What change will this bring to my community? Even though a whole bunch of this is like, and the most visible thing clearly is it is a change to the landscape. And that's often what people are reacting to. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what were the findings from that study? What causes a community to resist hosting a wind farm in the Midwest? So the title of the paper kind of belies what we found. The title of the paper <laughs> is Farmers versus Lakers. <laughs> okay. And effectively what we find is that there are some communities that might be tr predisposed to be more accepting or not of wind. The the kind of I'm going to start with the second half of the title, the Lakers. So th the Lakers come in is that we found in communities with high natural amenities um where people build cottages or own cottages or, you know, second homes or they retire to the lake, um, that wind projects are more contentious. Um, the USDA actually has a measure of, um, they have a natural amenity scale and your higher natural amenities when you are close to water or when you are not flat. Um, those tend to be places where People value the scenery. Hmm. And so wind, because it is a change to the scenery, is seen as not as compatible in those kind of places. The other side of the title, the it's farmers versus Lakers, what we find is that in places where there's high indicator of agricultural activity, so there's larger farms, or more land is leased out and actively farmed, there's less contention. The rationale behind this is that wind is just another way for the land to be productive, another way for farmers to make money off the land. And so I think what's really unique from this paper is that a lot of the previous literature often pointed to policies or wind developer actions as the reason that some projects go south. A developer does something bad. And I don't want to discount that at all. I think that wind developers can certainly do things to screw up projects. But kind of what instigated this study was that I saw developers using similar tactics in Michigan that were met with very different reactions in two different communities. And this helps us understand why that might be, that some communities just may be more predisposed to support wind development than others. You mean over and above whatever the existing land uses are? Exactly. So adding on to this, I've subsequently done some additional research where we added on two more states to our study. It's still in the Midwest, kind of Great Lakes states, but expanded it to include six states. It also included more projects. So we were able to get projects, not just those that were already built, but also projects that failed, that were never built. Hmm. And because we had a bigger sample size where we were able to look at more variables, so not just kind of underlying community characteristics alone, but also developer practices, to some extent at policy differences between the states, states where it's the local government that does the siting and permitting versus states where it's the state all of that permitting is done at the state level. And in that research, we continue to find that there is some element of kind of 
contentiousness predisposition in a community that's just baked in, that those kind of characteristics associated with landscape and with agricultural production continue to be important indicators. But we also are able to put them in context of some development practices and actually start to see which development practices may be more impactful than others. So we're still working through like dotting our I's and crossing our T's and hope to get that out for peer review sometime soon. But effectively what that study is finding is that these elements of community predisposition are on the same par as developer actions. And it's not all developer actions. It's kind of specific developer actions. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's move on and talk about solar. From 2019 to 2020, you were part of a University of Michigan research team that looked at the community reactions to solar farms in the Great Lakes regions. Tell us about that study and your methodology. Yeah, so that one takes a different tact than kind of asking the developers. This one goes to newspaper reports and pulls all of the newspaper articles about utility-scale solar siting discussions in these Great Lakes states over the course of a 16-month period. And then we did in-depth content analysis to systematically analyze how were solar discussions portrayed in these news articles. Was it talking about the positives of solar, negatives of solar? Was it mixed? Was there like no underlying kind of value assessment of solar? And then what specific impacts of solar, positive and negative, were often brought up when utility scale project was discussed? Interesting. And what sorts of reactions to solar projects, whether they're positive or negative, did you find? So, well, first of all, we found that looking across the Midwest in this 2020 time period, we found a lot more positive than negative discussions about solar. But we also had lots of neutral or kind of mixed tone articles. So places portraying that not everyone is on the same page in a community. The biggest thing that we found in the discussion was a desire for community involvement in the process. So both talking about community participation, but also a sense that communities wanted to have a say on solar projects in their communities. A number of the articles talked about emissions reductions benefits, which to most people is not shocking. Actually, that's talked about very little in the Midwest with respects to wind energy. So that was actually surprising to me about how much emission kind of climate action discussion was associated with solar. And then a lot of these articles also talked about the comparative cost of solar to other energy sources. And most of the time, the articles were arguing in favor of solar, but sometimes there were articles suggesting, well, maybe this is not the wisest move for the Midwest when we have cheap wind. Hmm. Aesthetic considerations were quite prevalent in the articles. And Indiana was a standout in that there was lots of discussion about solar aesthetics in Indiana, and we are not sure why. And that was clearly when aesthetics were brought up, it was almost always in a kind of a negative light. But there were other topics like property value impacts or whether solar is a wise use of farmland where there were kind of competing attitudes portraying both sides. And I think that this is an active debate <laughs> over what impact utility scale solar has on nearby property values or 
different value judgments about, is this a wise use of farmland? Hmm. And we did pick that up in the content analysis. You know, comparing these two different studies and sort of the different community reactions to wind and solar, would you say that there was less objection to solar than to wind just simply based on whether or not people had to look at it? Yeah, I think that that is true. And actually, in the subsequent study that I talked about where we looked at more wind projects, we actually included some solar projects in that as well to see if we could see some underlying community characteristics mm. where communities would be more predisposed or not. There's not much there. <laughs> like The response is there's not much explaining why communities react differently to solar. But overall, there is less contentiousness around solar right now in the Midwest. I think some of it is that the visual impacts are limited to drive-by impacts, but I think one of the reasons that we're having trouble picking up any patterns in terms of community response to solar is that we're at a huge tipping point, certainly in the Midwest, but as I understand kind of nationwide, about how big a utility-scale solar project is. Mm. <laughs> Most of the utility-scale solar projects that are currently active in the Midwest are relatively small on the order of a couple megawatts. And many of them tend to be in suburban or more urban areas. But that is quickly changing. And we're seeing much more development in rural areas on the 150 to 200 megawatt scale. Mm -hmm. You know, the anecdote that I would put on is that right now the state's largest solar farm is 239 megawatts. And when it came on board, it effectively tripled Michigan's installed solar capacity. <laughs> you know, what's built right now, even including that large project, the average size of a solar project in Michigan is five megawatts or so, kind of what's in the queue, in the MISO queue to come is 135 megawatts. So it's just, things are changing very quickly here. And so it's hard to pick up patterns right now. Back to your question. Yes, I think that solar is less contentious. There have been projects already though, in Michigan and in the neighboring states that have been denied or have seen significant delays based on community response. Hmm. I'm trying to remember how much space a megawatt of solar takes. Isn't it about an acre? A megawatt yeah. of solar, it depends on how you're counting it, but right. it's usually the rule of thumb that we use here is three to 10 acres. Three is if you've got a small array and you don't have kind of fixed tilt panels and you don't have a bunch of interior access roads. In Michigan, we've got a lot of wetlands to work around. And so developers are actually finding that they have to lease more land than they anticipated mm. just from the environmental impacts. And so right. the average here is about 10 acres per megawatt. Because of all that additional land that doesn't actually have solar panels sitting on it that is involved in the overall project. Yeah, but maybe within the fence. And so kind right. of how you measure that is the tricky thing that actually <laughs> on the local government side, like. This is something that they often grapple with, too. So a five megawatt solar project, you're saying, could occupy as much as 50 acres? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I would say a five megawatt solar project could be that big. Most of the time, though, they're going to be on the smaller end of that. So it would yeah. be more like 25 acres. Okay. It's actually once you get to those larger projects 
counterintuitively that at least the small end that we have right now built, because we don't have tons of those large projects built, but it's those largest projects that tend to actually have more acres per megawatt. But to put this in context, like the projects... Isn't that- it the other way around, that the larger projects have fewer acres per megawatt? Again, because of the access roads, what we're seeing here, but maybe this is different in different parts of the country, what we're seeing here is that they actually tend to be a little bit larger. Hmm. So the 239 megawatt project that I mentioned that's built, it spans 1,900 acres. So about eight acres per megawatt. Hmm. Okay. So I think it helps to kind of go into that detail a little bit because not everybody has a visual idea in their mind of what is a five megawatt solar project in terms of its impact on land. Yeah. So it's helpful to think about that. All right. Well, a recent article in NPR that cited you discussed how opponents to wind and solar farms frequently use social media, and especially Facebook, to spread misinformation about those projects as a way of whipping up community resistance to them. And I suppose we've all probably come across various instances of that sort of thing, like outlandish claims about the health effects of wind turbine noise or wildly inflated claims about the danger of wind turbines breaking up. And of course, the spread of misinformation across social media is a problem across our entire society (laughs) and certainly isn't limited to just wind and solar opposition. But have you found any effective ways to counter misinformation about such projects and build community support for them? Mm, That's a really good question. Not just what the problem is, but like, what's the solution? What do you do about it? I would say not necessarily from research, but more, again, from practice. So I mentioned before that I spend a lot of time in communities. And the reason, actually, that I spend so much time in rural communities talking about the pros and cons is that in doing my dissertation research, talking to local officials about the wind farms that came into their community, what I heard again and again from them, from the local officials, was that it was really hard to get a straight story about renewables, that a developer would show up and talk about the positives. Usually the people that show up at public meetings tend to be opposed to things. And I can say that sitting on like the planning commission in the city of Ann Arbor. And so it's like the battle of what's true between them. I first got a grant from a Michigan-based foundation, and now I am supported by the state energy office to go to communities and talk about the pros and cons and help them sort out fact from fiction and help them internalize that every energy source has local impacts. And they've got to think about kind of which impacts they're willing to live with in their community. As a scientist, I think I have some credibility. I also recognize that I and universities are not always the most trusted messengers. Hmm. We actually carried a survey. University of Michigan, for the last decade, has this survey that goes out to every local government in the state of Michigan. We have 1,856 local units of government. The survey goes out to these local government officials every year and asks about a range of local issues. And a couple years ago on the survey, we asked local officials across the state who they trust to get information about energy from. And the most trusted source of information about energy was local government associations. So in Michigan, that's the Michigan Association of Counties, the Michigan Townships Association. 
the second most trusted organization to get information was the utilities, which sometimes utilities are developers themselves, but not always. And kind of universities and the state energy office are in the middle. But actually, the people that are least trusted to get information about energy are energy companies themselves, like energy developers. They're dead last and right before them as the second least trusted source of information are NGOs. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On May 18th, the European Union unveiled its plan to invest up to 210 billion euros over the next five years to end its reliance on Russian oil and gas. In keeping with the Repower EU strategy announced in March, which we discussed in episode 171, the plan stands on three key pillars, improving energy efficiency, expanding renewable energy capacity, and securing non-Russian supplies of oil and gas. The efficiency investments will include improving building insulation and educating consumers, as well as transitioning more heating systems from fossil fuel burning boilers to electric heat pumps. Some 113 billion euros in investments are expected in renewables and hydrogen infrastructure. And in a move that I think Sarah would applaud, the Commission took aim at siting hurdles and years-long permitting processes by proposing specially designated go-to areas where permission can be given for a new facility in just one year. It will also require certain new buildings to have solar installed on the roof. To the dismay of some climate campaigners, the plan also calls for up to 12 billion euros, or about 6% of the overall package, to be invested in pipelines and LNG terminals to improve access to alternate supplies of gas and oil imports from countries like Egypt, Israel, and Nigeria. But as we explained in episode 171, the scale of this challenge simply doesn't allow immediate solutions that don't involve alternate supplies. 
However, the plan did not, as originally expected, include an outright ban on Russian oil imports. EU sanctions require the unanimous backing of all 27 members, and Hungary, Moscow's closest ally in the EU, said it would veto any such ban unless the EU offered to invest some 15 to 18 billion euros in modernizing Hungary's energy infrastructure, which is highly dependent on Russian supplies of oil and gas. But the European Commission has offered just 2 billion euros, so Hungary officially held out, even while its largest energy company, MOL, which is partly owned by the Hungarian state, prepared its refineries to process non-Russian oil. Finally, on May 30th, the EU resolved the deadlock by blocking all seaborne imports of Russian oil, which account for about two-thirds of its oil exports to the EU. The remaining third, imported by the EU via pipeline, would be exempt from the ban, effectively giving landlocked Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic an out on the deal. And that's how the sausage is made, folks. Meanwhile, Germany said that it intends to stop importing Russian oil by the end of this year. Russia's share of German crude consumption has already declined from about 35% before the war in Ukraine started to about 12% today. Poland is expected to do likewise, leaving just 10% of Russia's oil imports still flowing to the EU via pipeline by the end of the year. At the same time, the EU and the UK agreed to ban insuring ships carrying Russian oil, further curtailing its ability to export crude. Lloyds of London has been at the heart of the marine insurance industry for centuries, and finding a substitute to insure Russian cargoes may be all but impossible. The following day, some members of the OPEC Plus producer cartel announced that they were considering exempting Russia from the group's oil production targets, effectively clearing the way for the group's traditional members to increase their production to make up for the loss of Russian crude. The plus in OPEC Plus was a fairly recent addition, indicating Russia's coordination with the cartel, so I propose that the OPEC Plus moniker now be replaced with OPEC Plus or Minus. Separately, Germany announced in May that it would make heat pumps mandatory as of 2024, and the Netherlands announced that it would do likewise and ban heating with fossil fuels starting in 2026. Item 2. According to new data compiled by Bloomberg NEF, global passenger EV sales doubled in 2021 to nearly 6.6 million units. Straight battery electric vehicles had a 70% share of the total, and plug-in hybrids got the remaining 30%, with fuel cells. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.